You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is the word of God, the people of God today, I want to pray. Bow your heads with me, Father. We thank you for these first three verses of chapter 3 in Philippians. We thank you that we have the privilege to be together this morning to hear from your word, to worship you as we study your word, to worship you as we sing songs, to worship you as we spend time in prayer and giving and the receiving of communion. Lord, over the next few moments, we ask God that you would come and do that which none of us in this room is capable of doing, and that is to transform lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do this work from the youngest of us spiritually to the oldest of us spiritually. For those of us in the room who are just yet maybe beginning the journey of hearing from you, To the oldest of us in the room who have been hearing from you for many, many years, God, I pray that you would come and do a vast work of transformation, that you would cause change deep inside of us, Lord, that you would take dead hearts out and put brand new living hearts in, that you would peer into the places of our hearts and souls that are hardened against you, bored with you, rebellious against you. And then you would help us to come to life. She would help us to find rest and comfort and healing in you. I pray that you would come and do that and then some. Pray finally, Father, that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and that you would cause them to do good for your people and to bring glory to you for you are our rock and our salvation and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to start off with a, a question um, that I hope just kind of um, sticks with you as we work our way through this passage. Here's the question. Y'all ready? Say, I'm ready if you're ready. ready. Say, I'm not ready if you're not ready. Okay, so we'll try again. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Question, okay? What is it that's been stealing your joy? Just write that down. Make a mental picture, mental note. What is it that has been stealing your joy? Joy is a precious commodity, I think, that sometimes can appear to be a very rare treasure, hard to find. Seems elusive at times. Anybody with me on that? Where 
It's just hard to find some joy, right? Okay. I assumed that many of us could relate to that. Days where you wake up in the morning, you've got an overwhelming sense of sadness deep down inside of you. Nights where you lay your head down on the pillow, you kind of wonder, man, what's this life all about anyways? Wonder if you're going to wake up in the morning with any shred of joy in your life whatsoever? Joy is elusive. Uh, The reality is that the issues of our day are plentiful. Agreed? The issues of our day are plentiful. More than enough reason in this life. Entertain thoughts and feelings of sadness, anger, bitterness, fear. Lots of emotions and feelings and thoughts that we can entertain to the detriment of our joy. I call them joy killers. I call them joy drainers, right? There's just lots of things. Seems like there's more things that can drain our joy than there are things that pour that joy back in. It's just, it's just the way I think human experience uh, feels often. Difficulties and the stress of this life can be oftentimes so overwhelming that feels like our souls are under attack, right? Just days where it just feels like, man, I'm just, it's like a constant barrage. And the, and, the, and the fortress of my heart feels like it's beginning to cave under that constant attack. It was the good thing is that God, God in His kindness, God in His patience, God in His grace, in His mercy, God, in His foreknowledge, in His sovereignty, He knew where you and I would be today. God knew where our country would be today. God knew what 2020 was going to bring. And none of this that caught Him off guard. One of the common... um, One of the common terms for uh, the book of Philippians is uh, joy in the midst of lockup. In fact, when when we first started thinking about preaching this book was back in um, the middle of COVID, you know, back in like March, April, kind of in the middle of the whole lockdown side of things for us. And I remember thinking, man, like maybe this would be a good direction for us to go. So here we are in Philippians. Paul's in lockup. He's in prison, uh, not because of some crazy political stunt, not because of some pandemic, although you could argue that sin is a pandemic and has been since day one. There's a thing, God knew, God has known, nothing catches him off guard, and yet in his patience, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his goodness... He knew that you and I would need to be reminded to rejoice. He knew that we would need to be reminded to keep an eye out for the things that kill the joy in our lives. Knew that we would need to be reminded to remember who and whose we are. If you, in fact, are a believer this morning, if you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, then God wants to care for you through the preaching of His Word. 
If you're not yet a believer, not yet a child of God, you're an enemy of God, if that's where you're at. You're not yet a Christian. And the reality is that God still, in His grace and His mercy and His love for you, wants to care for you through the preaching of His Word. God knows that there are ample reasons for you and for for I to uh, live a joyless life. He knows that our enemies, Satan, sin, and the grave, Satan, sin, and death. He knows that our enemies are going to stop at nothing to steal our joy. And if you belong to God, then He'll give you joy. If you do not yet belong to God, and I encourage you, if you submit and surrender to God, what He will do is fill you with joy, and He'll help you to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as a citizen of heaven, which I believe is the the purpose of this book. I believe that's the reason Paul wrote it, is he wants us to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven. Well, this is why the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins with this first instruction, to rejoice. To rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> when you look at verse 1, what does he say? He says, finally, my brothers. Now, that's kind of funny anyways, if, you, if you're reading my translation. Finally, my brothers. This is the beginning of chapter 3. There's still an entire two chapters left to go in this book. He's like your everyday preacher. Y'all probably think he's a bit like me. Finally, in conclusion. Oh, he's still got two chapters to go. Buckle up, buttercup, right? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Um, I love the ESV because it's the extra saved translation, and it's also the... Extra sovereign translation, and the jokes go on. The extra sanctified translation, the jokes go on and on and on, okay? Um, it is the version I preach out of, but I don't like, I don't like the rendition of finally. When I look at the Greek, and those of you who read the NIV or the KJV or any of those other Vs, um, you're going to find different words put there for finally. Finally just doesn't feel right. It's not like he's like putting the point at the end of a thought. It's more like he's continuing a thought. So it, it may be better, it'd be better to say, so, brothers. Uh, you, might even, you might even be able to throw in there, therefore, brothers, which then if you put the therefore in there, you've got to ask the question, what's the therefore? therefore. God, you guys are awesome. I love you. I'm, I love the fact that we are family. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So in other words, what's happening here is Paul is saying that he has absolutely no problems repeating himself. Those of you who have to repeat yourself to your spouses, take note. Those of you that have to repeat yourself to your children, take note. And those of you that have to repeat things to yourself so you don't forget, take note. <laughs> take note. Paul said, I have no problems reminding you to rejoice. Why? Why is he cool with, excited about, overjoyed about repeating himself? Um, because he knows that to repeat himself is to keep people safe. Joy Joy is the safety net that we fall into when life gets hard. Joy is the safety net that we fall into 
When life gets hard and when our enemies attempt to lure us away from the safety of the presence of God. And Paul instructs the Philippians to rejoice here. What he's doing is he's actually taking the concept of joy in the one hand, and in the other hand, he's taking the steady anchor of, of God Himself and His salvation over us, and he's supergluing the two together. That's what he's doing. You try to find joy apart from God, and you ain't going to find anything that lasts. Okay? You're not going to find anything that's sustainable. You'll continue to build your life on sand that's going to wash away. All of us in this room instinctively know that's true. Paul is super gluing this instruction to rejoice to the sure and steady anchor of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is both, in the words of one author, He's both the occasion and the source of our joy. Not just the source, not just the occasion, but He's both the occasion and the source. There, there cannot be any lasting or sustaining joy in our circumstances. Do you think about your circumstances of your life? Circumstances are always going to leave you bankrupt. Always. No matter how good or how bad the circumstances of your life are, they will leave you bankrupt. They'll leave you in need of real joy. Okay, circumstances are like robbers who steal the joy from your soul and they replace it with poison. <coughs> Trust circumstances and your heart gets filled with poison. Paul has really already exhorted the Philippians to, uh, to be joyful or to rejoice in, 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 in other places. Chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, he's said it, and he says it here. He's going to say it again in uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. And the reason for the repetition is because Paul loves the church. Paul loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. He loves to protect his brothers and sisters with God's word. Fascinating thing is the way that he uses his words here is really a throwback to Nehemiah 8.10, Psalm 81.1, 1 Chronicles 16.27. Those passages are passages you ought to write down, make a note of, and go check out because it would be good for you. It would be safe for you. Nehemiah 8.10 says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation, O Lord. True joy is, is expressly, constantly attached to salvation instead of momentary circumstances. The joy of the Lord literally is rooted in Christ's salvation. And when your joy is rooted there, when your joy is anchored there in the salvation that God offers you in Christ at the cross and the empty tomb with the promise of heaven, when your joy is rooted there, then it will be as though you are wearing, as one author said, divine armor for daily battle. Divine armor for daily battle. So, so rejoice in the Lord, my friends. That's, that's the first thing Paul says. Second thing Paul says, says keep watch. Keep watch. Stay alert. Wake up. 
Hello, can you see this? Keep watch. Verse 2, look what he says. Look out, keep watch for the dogs. Look out, keep watch for the evildoers. Look out, keep watch for those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, keep watch. Stay alert. Keep a sharp eye open for anything or anyone who tries to tempt you to find your joy in anything or anyone other than Christ himself. Now, there are some specific enemies Paul has in mind in this passage. They are so-called Christians who attach rules and conditions to salvation. And namely, the Apostle Paul has a specific group of people in mind in his day that were known as the circumcision party. This is a group of people that Paul had fought against for years. And these people would argue that you could not be a Christian unless you were circumcised. And you'll find proof of this in Acts 15, all throughout the book of Galatians, but specifically Galatians 1, 8 through 9 and 3, 1 through 14. While the book of Galatians, I love this statement, Uh, the book of Galatians acts like a really awesome verbal flamethrower, absolutely scorches anybody who wants to live in legalism. Philippians 3.2, the verse we're looking at, also acts like a, a major tongue lashing for any kind of legalistic joy killers. Um, to think with me for a minute <coughs> about what Paul is saying here in verse 2. He instructs the Philippians to keep watch for joy killers. When he does this, here's what he does. He effectively pulls out the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and effectively impales these legalists with their own language. I love it. If you could look at the Greek, you would see that Paul actually uses an, an, an alliterative form of words that all start, start with the letter K. When this letter would have been read to the church in Philippi, it would have had a massive pop to it because of the words used. What he does here is he effectively takes the the three-shot pistol out of their hand and turns it back around on them. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, These joy-killing, legalistic, quote-unquote, Christians of the circumcision party, here's what they believed. So listen close. I'm not going to spend a long time here. Here's what they believed. They believed that to be a Christian, you must be circumcised. And if you are circumcised, then number one, you're clean and pure. You should write that down. Number two, they believe that you were then keeping the law of Moses. You're a law keeper. And number three, they believe then that you're part of the family now. You're not an outcast. Okay? So that was what they preached. It's what they taught. Apostle Paul takes that gun out of their hand, turns it back around on them, and what does he call them? He calls them dogs, calls them evildoers, calls them self-mutilators. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't recall the last time I saw a pastor step in the pulpit and call people those things. Now, we would all be pretty remiss to say that we're all perfect enough in here that none of us have given in to legalism. But let me just say that all of us are probably guilty of legalism. Okay, and so Paul's, and so Paul's 
theme would be, man, if that's you, then you are a dog, you are an evildoer, and you are a destructive self-mutilator. Why? Why is his language so harsh? Why is it so intense? Again, our, our fluffy little culture that we live in today, and even the Christian bubble inside of that culture that we live in, can't handle the harshness of this often, I don't think. Here's what he's saying. When he calls them dogs, he's saying you're unclean. You're not clean and pure like you think you are just because you practice circumcision. You're actually dirty. The thing that you think makes you clean actually makes you dirty. That's When he calls them dogs, that's what he's saying. When he calls them evildoers, an evildoer is a lawbreaker. He's saying the laws that you keep actually make you a lawbreaker. Why? I, this, did, this doesn't make any sense, does it? Because I would say, well, if you follow the law, then you're a law keeper, not a lawbreaker. Like, duh, this is basic rocket science. No, it's not even rocket science. Just, it's just, I mean, it's just basic, basic law. He says, well, you keep the law, you're actually a lawbreaker. Because if you're a self-mutilator and you, you put your hope and your faith and your trust in that, you're actually not part of the family. You're on the outside looking in. You think you're part of the family, but you're not. That's harsh, Apostle Paul. Now, if you were to examine this deeper, um, and you could go back to, uh, I'm going to give you the reference for what Eric read this morning. Again, you guys have heard me say this probably thousands of times over the years that you've been here long enough. Um, the guys that get up here in MC on Sunday mornings and I, we don't collude. We don't have like little backroom deals where I'm like, this is what I'm preaching, so you should read this so that it all ties together. Like, it's a, there are more Holy Spirit moments between the MC passage that the MCs use and what I preach. I, w I, wish, I wish I would have kept track, like writing it down. Eric read through Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, and he went all the way down through chapter 5, verse 11. Let me give it to you again. 4.13 through 5.11. Okay? 4.13 through 5.11. Everything that Eric read there supports what I'm preaching today. It's absolute insanity. It's not insanity. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God does. He knows what we needed this morning. So go there and check that out this week. What's my push? My push is to get you into your Bible so you can hear from God, right? That being said, when you go back and you think about Paul's enemies here, these circumcision parties, these quote-unquote Christians who were attaching laws and conditions to salvation, um, if you could have heard them, you, you and I would have easily agreed with lots of what they were saying. Their language would have seemed to have merit because they would have had lots of Bible verses to support what they were saying. Typically, Bible verses taken out of context. The reality is, even though they had those things, they were actually unclean, they are lawbreakers, and they had no relationship with God. Paul goes so far to say in Galatians, don't listen to these guys. They come and preach a message to you, even if an angel comes and preaches a message to you like they are, but it doesn't align with what I've preached to you. 
Let that man be anathematized. Um, take that guy out in street language. Principle here is keep watch for those kinds of people. Why? Because the gospel that they proclaim is unchristian. Period. It's not Christian. It's self-centered. It's focused on what you can do. And it's absolutely bankrupt. Third thing we see in the text. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. This is really important. Remember who you are. Verse 3, what does he say? It says, for we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the what? Flesh. No confidence in the flesh. In other words, simply put, don't forget who you are and don't forget whose you are. You are who you are because of whose you are. Say it again. You are who you are because of whose you are. If you give yourself over to sin, and to Satan, which leads to death, then who do you belong to? Who is your master? You are who you are because of whose you are. So the picture of slavery to sin is the same picture of slavery in the physical world. When you are set free from that slavery, what do you constantly want to do? run back to the place that you are comfortable with, right? You are who you are because of whose you are. Don't forget who and whose you are. And it also becomes a question for you this morning. Whose are you? To whom have you given yourself over to? Have you given yourself over to Jesus? Or have you given yourself over to pornography? Or have you given yourself over to addictions? Or have you given yourself over to your money or your family or your wife or politics? Facebook posts. Lord knows I got enough of those this week. Three o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep. Ignore those, by the way, y'all. <laughs> Sleeping pills. Have a tendency to do something. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. It's a question for us. Whose are you? That dictates who you are. If you belong to Jesus, you trust in him, then even when you go back to slavery and you give in to sin again, guess what? Doesn't change who you are. See, whose you are can change. Especially when you're living in your sin. There's, when God purchases you, when, you, when He walks out of the store with you under His arm, when He walks out of the adoption home with you, with your hand in His, He doesn't let go of you. Now you can run off. It's like my dog who continues to run off. question for us is, do you chase after the dog or do you let him go? Whose are you? Therefore, who are you? Here's the thing. If you're a child of God, you belong to him, then according to Jeremiah 9.25, your heart has been circumcised. I don't have to explain circumcision here, right? 
Anybody need to know what circumcision is? No shame, no guilt. Okay, just making sure. Heart's been circumcised, been cut away. Okay, been cut away. Heart's been circumcised. You're justified. You've been made right. You've been made pure. You've been made clean. Because of the faith that is alive in you, that you are exerting. Who creates the faith in you? You? Well, I mean, there are some who believe there's a little ounce of faith. It's this little itty-bitty seed of faith, like way down. It's like over here by the third rib, somewhere maybe. And God put that there. And, and you, either way, it began with God because Hebrews teaches us what? Jesus is the author. He wrote it. And the perfecter, he makes it right of our faith. So your faith, you exert that. Not on your own, because you can't do it on your own. So if you exert your faith, the Holy Spirit gave you the ability because he gave you a brand new heart. Otherwise, you've got a heart of stone that can't wake up and even respond to him. So as a child of God, your heart's been circumcised, justified, made right through faith. In Christ's work at the cross, Romans 2, 28-29. See, a spiritually circumcised child of God worships God in spirit and in truth, boasts in the work of Christ at the cross and the empty tomb, finds confidence in an overwhelming joy in the inward work of the Spirit of living God. Let me go back to this verse one more time. Verse 3, read it. For we are the circumcision who do what? Worship by the Spirit of God. Glory in Christ Jesus means boast in Christ Jesus and puts no confidence in the flesh. What Paul is saying is this is who you are because of whose you are. Don't forget it. I'll come back to that again later because I think one of the most fundamental key issues in life is our identity. It's once you forget who you are based on whose you are. Once you start walking outside of that, you start putting on different masks. You start, you start, you know, reading different scripts. Like, this is the thing I'm supposed to say and supposed to do while I'm here. So pull those scripts out your pocket. You put that mask on your face. You pretend to be somebody that you're not. <clears throat> it comes about performance, which we'll talk about more in a bit. Let me come back. Application. We've explained the text and what it says and what it means. And you've got to ask the question, what's the question? Anybody know what the question is? Yeah, very good. Very good. Melissa, you get 15 stars on your chart in heaven. Yes! But if you make any mistakes today, all 15 of those go away. So just so you know. Very good. Very good, Melissa. Very good. Rejoice, watch, and remember. Rejoice in the Lord. Watch out for joy-killing legalism. Remember who you belong to. That's Paul's instructions. Why does it matter? What's the big deal? Who cares? You ask those questions. Because it's an application question. So here's what I think. <clears throat> I think it's probably easy to admit that we all struggle with joy probably fairly easy to admit that we all need to remember who we are and whose we are. Probably all know there isn't a literal circumcision party anymore. Um, 
So when we think of joy-killing legalism, here's what I think we think of. I might be wrong, but I'm, I'm going to just bet on, bank on, I catch most of us in the room at least, when, when we think about those legalistic people, we're thinking about people um, who get under our skin. We're thinking about people that rub us the wrong way with their different opinions, whether they be spiritual, social, or political. And here's the problem. Paul doesn't necessarily have those people in mind. So let that correct us just a little bit. I don't think Paul necessarily has those people in mind. Paul actually has real legalists in mind, not just people he disagrees with. Paul has in his mind people who make salvation a matter of works. A matter of works. If, if your relationship with Jesus is based on anything other than grace, then it's based upon legalism. I say it again. If your relationship with Jesus is based on anything other than grace, then it's based on legalism, which is this, what I can do to earn God's affection. Now, to answer that from Romans, once again, if grace is a true thing, then grace does not give you license to go sin. So there is a tight... Um, tension when we talk about this most of us most of us i would assume probably have a basic concept of this probably have a basic concept we know that it, legalism is bad right we put it in that category got a bad drawer got a good drawer legalism bad grace good <clears throat> know that we are saved we know that we're sustained in a relationship with god by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone to the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone, even though there's like five statements there that all work together to be alone. It's called the solos of the Reformation. I love them. Tattooed on my arm. That's the second week in a row I made a reference to tattoos. <laughs> the Philippians, the Philippians, when you think about the Philippian church, they're 12 years old in their faith, okay? So they're, you know, you know, they're, they've been at it for 12 years. Why, why, why do they need to hear about salvation again? Isn't that the beginning point? Right? Like, why, why are we still talking about what most churches and preachers today would call the milk? Which is a whole load of hot crap. Okay? Because the gospel isn't the milk. The gospel is the meat and potatoes and the milk and everything in between. So, when we talk about salvation, we're talking about the gospel in many regards. Philippians are 12 years old in their faith. Honestly, I'm pretty certain they probably knew their Bibles better than most of us. Why? Because um, the Philippian church um, was in a very um, rigorous religious culture. They didn't have TVs, cell phones to distract them from their Bibles. So why, why would Paul need to remind them of this? Now, I'm sure we get the point that this reminder is protective, right? But, but how can we, how can the Philippians actually be on guard against this joy-killing legalism that Paul's talking about? How? How do you ensure that you aren't a dog? How do you ensure that you're not an evil-doing lawbreaker? How do you ensure that you're not just some kind of a destructive mutilator of the faith? How do you ensure that your relationship with God isn't infected with legalism? 
I think the key is found in verse 3. Well, I went there twice. Because it has to do with identity. It's where Paul reminds us of who and whose we are. Remember, again, you are who you are based upon whose you are. We belong to God because of our trust in Christ's work at the cross. Therefore, what? We're called to worship God. That means everything you do in life is worship. It's not just the songs we sing on Sunday mornings. It's like one of the biggest heresies, modern heresies in the American church. Let's go worship. As though singing songs was worship and studying his word is not. As though fellowshipping is not. As though watching your TV is not. All of that is worship because the concept around worship is to give yourself away to something else. It's to lay yourself down at the foot of something else. It's to bow down to something else. So, Paul says, called to worship God. Called to boast in the cross of Christ. Called to rest assured in the finished work of Christ. This is where I believe legalism goes to die. This is where I also believe joy overflows. I can't preach a message to you that gets you all worked up and like full of joy and you're happy and you like run out of here and you're like, yay, praise Jesus. I, I, can't, I can't do that. But the place that you can find joy and the place that your legalism can die is at the foot of the cross. It's, that's where it's at. So in conclusion, I want you to think about joy as a, as a, as a dashboard gauge. Okay? Think about joy. This is why I opened with the question, what's been killing your joy lately? We're back to that question. Okay? We've asked the question. We've placed an image in your mind, hopefully by the power of the Spirit, right? We've worked our way through the Word to let the Word speak to that by the power of the Spirit. Now we're back to that question again. Why don't you think of that question like a dashboard gauge in your car? It's actually the dashboard of your soul. When, when your joy meter is running on empty, what does that tell you? It doesn't just tell you, I need to go find some joy, happy day. Whoa. It doesn't just tell you that. When your joy meter is running on empty, it tells you that you're filling your tank with something other than the gospel. That's what it tells you. And the typical thing that we fill our tanks with, I referenced this for a moment earlier, is our performance. I think at the core, it's our performance. I, some would argue there's experiences that we chase. Others would argue there's possessions that we chase. Others would argue that there's um, stature that we chase. Absolutely, all those are true. But let me just say that I believe performance is like the core of all those. It's what can I do to get a better stature at my job? It's what can I do to be more loved by my wife, right? It's what can I do um, to, to get more um, things. Uh, it, it, it's, it's what can I do to get a better social standing. Performance, I think, is underneath all of that. It's what drives all of that. So I think the typical thing that we fill our tanks with are performance-based things. We start checking the check boxes, like we just joked about a minute ago. And Melissa knows that also well because we've been we talk about this all the time. Why? Why do we repeat ourselves? Because it's good for us. It's safe. It brings me great joy to repeat this again. We check check boxes. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't gamble, don't cuss, don't watch R-rated films, don't dance, don't chew, 
don't date girls who do. I, love, I just love that one because it rhymes. The flip side is also true, though, right? It's just a, those of us who are more negative, we, it's the don'ts, the do's, positive reinforcement, we call it, which I'm not arguing against positive reinforcement. I'm also not arguing against telling people don't do something, right? Don't stand in front of railroad trains, tracks. Don't stand on the railroad tracks in front of a train. You will, you will die. Do get off the railroad track when the train is coming. Just don't even get on the railroad track to begin with, and you'll be better, right? Don't play around the edge of the cliff. You won't fall off, right? Don't get your hand too close to the hot stove. You're probably not going to get burned. So I have no problems with do's or don'ts, but we, 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 we look at our relationship with God based upon do's and don'ts. We use positive performance to bolster our joy, don't we? Pat yourself on the back for going to church, doing church-related activities every week, reading the Bible daily, putting money in the offering box, helping the poor, etc., etc. The list goes on and on. Good things to do. Don't stop doing them. Don't start doing bad things just because, like, well, the preacher said, no, no, don't, don't hear me wrong, all right? Because the, the point here is that our performance, either good or bad, doesn't affect God's love for us. It doesn't change our standing before God in salvation. If it did, if it did, then you would need to walk around in an unholy kind of a fear every day whereby you work to keep your salvation. That's a works-based salvation. Again, don't get me wrong. It's not the performance isn't connected to salvation. Not that works is not connected to salvation. It's just that we cannot get the cart in front of the horse. Because when you put the cart in front of the horse, it makes a big fat mess. Because the horse runs through the cart and all the apples spill on the ground and get destroyed. So put the cart behind the horse where it belongs. Salvation is not a product of performance. I don't care how many times you prayed the prayer at however many camps you went to. That performance did not save you. What saved you was God calling you in his work at the cross and nothing else. I will boast in nothing else other than Christ's work at the cross. My ability to pray that prayer came from where? If it came from me, then I got skin in that game. And what am I going to boast in? I'll boast in my work, not in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Performance is not a product of Performance is a product of salvation. Salvation is not a product of performance. Performance is a product of salvation. Holy performance is a product of salvation. Read the book of James. Read Ephesians chapter 2. I think you'll find this to be true. Pay attention to the joy meter in your soul and you'll see where you have the cart placed at and where the horse is. See, if you focus on your identity in Christ, if you focus on being a worshiper of Christ, if you focus on boasting in Christ, if you focus on finding confidence in Christ, then what's going to happen? Your performance will follow that. Not, I'm not talking about the hollow performance of a graceless legalism where you disconnect from the world around you because it's so filthy out there. I'm talking about a grace-filled relationship with Jesus whereby you worship 
Jesus more and more each day, whereby you boast in Jesus more and more each day, whereby you remain more and more confident in Jesus and his finished work at the cross every day. So rejoice in the Lord, my friends. Keep watch for any legalistic poison making its way into your soul. And above all this, remember who you are based upon whose you are. And then once again, I'm always going to leave you here. I'm always going to conclude at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb. I'm going to encourage you to hold on to the promise of heaven where our hope actually lies. That's where our identity is found. It's there. That's where legalism goes to die. That's where joy overflows. That's where you and I learn how to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the message of the cross. We pray now, Father, as we close, that uh, you would lead us there to the foot of that bloody cross in the doorway of that empty tomb, holding on tightly to the promise of heaven. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.